Let's turn in Scripture then to the second psalm. Psalm 2. So Psalm 2, we'll read the entire psalm. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. So far than the reading of that song. <clears throat> Dear friends, you know that every sermon typically has a text that the preacher will attempt to open up. Sometimes the text is, is longer. I believe I preached a sermon here once on the whole book of Revelation. Sometimes it's much shorter. But today I'd like to do something uh, where I'd like to take the whole Bible as my text. Last week we considered what the Bible is in terms of its infallibility, in terms of its authority. But today I'd like to consider the message of the Bible. And especially to take the whole Scripture together. So if, 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 I mean, this is the ultimate bird's eye view, isn't it, of the scripture. To ask ourselves this question, is there, is there one message in the Bible that we can reduce the whole Bible, and maybe reduce isn't the right word, but is there one kind of overarching message to the whole of scripture? That's what I would like to consider. So really I would like to take the whole Bible then as my, as my text. And what makes us think this morning that the Bible would even have one such message? Well, that takes us back to last week, and that is that if the Bible has one author, then we would expect it to have one message, one grand message. Now, I know there's many things that the Bible teaches us, an infinitude of things that the Bible teaches us. Right? The Bible is a, is a very deep well. But if the Bible ultimately has one author, then we would expect it to speak with one voice and to have one grand overarching message. And that message is what I would like to try to distill, as it were, from the scriptures this morning. 
Now, as I thought about what to preach on then this morning, my thoughts came to Psalm 2, which will sort of be my text, although, again, I, I want, to, want the whole Bible to be the text this morning. But I believe Psalm 2 guides us and gives us this overarching message of all of Scripture. And Psalm 2, congregation, is a deep well. Uh, this is one of those texts that when, the, you know, when I started studying it, I realized I was in over my head. This is a very deep passage of Scripture. Uh, and you feel how, how insufficient and how poor we are to understand the, the meaning of the Scripture when you, start to, when you start to try to understand what's happening here. Because Psalm 2 really gives us this cosmic view of all of human history. Psalm 2 is like the book of Revelation, all in, reduced down to 12 verses. It's a grand view of history from eternity past to eternity future. But that's perfect for what we want to do then this morning, isn't it? If we're going to understand the message of the Bible in its entirety, then Psalm 2 is a beautiful entryway right into that beautiful cathedral, as it were. So let's look at Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is, is divided up quite easily. Because in verses 1 to 3, you have the, the situation, you might say. You have uh, this, the, the, the nations are in uproar and revolt. I put on the outline there, treason. There's treason. They're, they're revolting against their king. And then in verses 4 through 6, you have the, God's response to that treason, to that revolt. God responds to it. Then in verse 7 to the end, you have God's anointed, God's son speaks. He says, I will surely tell. And, and now that's a different speaker than what was before. So let's look at this more closely then. And let's start in verse 1, where we have the situation given us. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. In other words, the people are, are devising and planning this vain thing. It's a, it's a futile, foolish thing that they're planning. But that's what they're doing. They're planning this vain thing. And now verse 2 gives us this picture. Do you see them there? Here's their conference room. The kings of the earth are coming in. They're going to take their stand against God Almighty. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now that's important, isn't it? Because it's not just that they're taking counsel against the Lord, but they're taking counsel against his anointed. Now, if we're reading this psalm with very strictly literal eyes, right, and, and trying to understand this text just in terms of its very simple meaning, we would say, well, the anointed there must mean David, King David, right? He's, he's the anointed one. Uh, he's the one that God anointed to be king over Israel. In verse 3, we have what the, what the rulers want to do. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's rip off these handcuffs, as it were, right? They don't want to be under the heel of God any longer. They want to be free. They want to be liberated from that bondage as they understand it. So they want to tear off those, that, those cords, the ropes that are tying them up. They want to be set free. So this is the treason, right? They want to throw off God's sovereign rule. And then in verse 4 through 6, we have God's response. And you see that God sits in the heavens and he mocks with this. 
Right? It's so foolish that these, these people, uh, these kings that think themselves so wise and so powerful, and they're just a trifle, aren't they? They're just a dust in the balances. And yet they're, they're coming together. It's almost as if we came into church and we saw a, a conference meeting of ants, right? And we see them getting together to, to take over the world or something, right? I mean, that would just be so foolish, wouldn't it, children, to see a conference of little bugs getting together, right, and, and trying to decide they're going to take over your house or something, right? We would say that's ridiculous. Well, in a much grander way, here are these kings, right? They're coming together, and God just mocks and, and even laughs, it says. We don't often read in the Bible that God laughs, but here you have it. He scoffs at this folly. But then you see that it's not just the, the God scoffing and mocking with them, but in verse 5, he speaks to them in his anger, and he's going to terrify them in his fury. Now at this point, as we read in so many other places of Scripture, we would understand or we would think that what's coming is God is going to crush them. He's going to destroy them. Well, in a sense, that's true. But look at verse 6. It's not God is going to do these things. But in verse 6, we have, But as for me, I have installed my king. So in other words, God has taken all his power and authority and he's invested that upon another person. See, now this doesn't sound like David anymore, does it? This doesn't sound like we're just talking about David. I mean, David was God's anointed, no question about that. But now, but David wasn't invested with all of God's power and authority, right? So that this must be a greater figure, somebody more exalted than, than just some earthly king. But God doesn't punish the nations for their treason. He invests all his power upon his son. He says, uh, I have installed my king upon Zion, or Jerusalem, my holy mountain. And that's why I said here, I put that lovely word there, plenipotentiary, right? That's the old word that people used to talk about uh, when a king would take his authority and he would invest it in someone else and send him on a mission. And he would say, now you have all the authority of me as king. And you take that and you go uh, conduct my business under my name and under my authority. And such a person would be called a plenipotentiary. I guess uh, an ambassador would be a, a smaller... I'm not sure that an ambassador has all the power of the, of the king, but something similar. But a plenipotentiary. He has all the power of the potentate, the, the potentiary, the king. And this is now what God does to his son. He invests all his power upon his son. And this is now how God reacts to this treason. He does not crush the nations himself, but he puts all authority and power upon his anointed, his son. Now, when did that happen? Well, if you read verse 6, but as for me, I have installed, right? I think we can recognize all there, the past tense. So that's already happened, right? I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So it happened in the past sometime. We might ask, when in the past has God installed his king, his anointed? And as we kind of scroll through the, the ages of history, there's no point in earthly history when this happened, right? I mean, it, it couldn't have been when Jesus was born. I mean, I take it it's clear now, right, that we're talking about God's son, his Messiah, his king. 
That would be in the future. But if we're talking in the past, then we have to go this way, and we go all the way back into the ages of eternity past. This is when God set his authority, invested all his divine authority upon his son, and set him up as king over his Zion, over his people, over his kingdom. So Jesus is God's plenipotentiary. He has all the power and the authority of God the Father. Well then, we come to verse 7, where now we have a, a, the speaker switches. No longer is it God the Father speaking, but now it is the Son, this anointed one. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. So now the Son is speaking saying, I will tell you, I will announce, I will proclaim to you what it is that the Lord said to me. Now here in verse 7, it's called decree. I think a better word for it though, congregation, is mission. That, that word there, decree, is the word in the scripture for uh, when you give a prescribed task to someone to do. Sometimes it's, it's translated as a statute. In other words, it's a, it's a standing uh, command that you give to a specific person to perform on your behalf. So, a, a, a mission. And now the son says, I will surely tell of the mission or the, the decree of the Lord. And here it is, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Long in the ages past of eternity, we are now given as or a window congregation, as as people on this earth, we are given a window into the, into the eternity past when God gave His Son a mission and invested Him with His authority and even said, You are my Son. That means that the Son is in a very mysterious way, to us at least, is in a very mysterious way, identified with God the Father. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you or birthed you now that's deeply mysterious, isn't it? I can't possibly pretend to explain that to you. But we know from the New Testament congregation that this is the great mystery of the Trinity, isn't it? That we have three persons, and here we're introduced to two of them, who are equal in their, uh, in their person, equally great in their person, and yet in a very mysterious way, united as one. But then it continues... Ask of me, this is what God the Father said to God the Son, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations, these rebellious nations, these nations that are in uproar, I will give them to you as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And you know how that is, right? Even children, you know that when you have a glass jar, right, and you drop it, right, it just shatters into a thousand pieces, right? You can't possibly collect them and put them back together again. They're, it's utterly destroyed. And that's what the Son is going to do to these rebellious nations. But then comes the call. So the mission, but now comes, congregation, the, what I'm calling the unveiling of this promise. And that's the title of the sermon this morning, the unveiling of the promise. And here it comes in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, or be wise. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, or with fear, and rejoice 
with trembling. Do homage to the Son. And many of you will remember the translation of the old King James Version here. Kiss the Son. Right? Kissing in those days was, a, was an act of submission, of bowing. Uh, remember, they would, the kings would often hold out their scepter, right? And the, and the people would kiss it. Do homage or, or submit or kiss the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, congregation, there's the unveiling of this promise. Be wise, kings. Do not continue in your treason, but submit yourself to my anointed son. Bow before him. Kiss the son, lest he gets angry, and you'll be beaten with that bar of iron that he spoke about before. You'll be shattered like a jar, like a clay pot. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So their congregation is then the unveiling of that promise before these treasonous rebels. Here is this promise that God makes. That if you take refuge in him, you'll be blessed and happy. But if you persist in your treason, if you persist in your rebellion, you'll be shattered like a pot. And you'll be crushed by a bar of iron. And that's why it says, congregation, worship the Lord with fear. And that means literal fear. I know it says reverence here. It seems to kind of back off a little bit, but it means fear. It means know who God is, know who he is, and know what he does to those who disobey him. But also this sincere call, come, bow, submit, kiss the Son, and be saved. Well, congregation, it's not difficult to understand how then this psalm gives us a, 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 a view into all of Scripture, isn't it? Because really, in, in those little 12 verses, we have God's grand message of salvation from eternity past. Right? When God planned and decreed the salvation of his people. And when he invested his son, Jesus Christ, with his authority. Until finally the time came when he set his son on his throne. And his son came and he announced the kingdom of God is here. Right? All of scripture then fits into this. Into this. Into what this psalm gives us. Treason, right? Let's start there with rebellion. All of man is in rebellion against God. This is the message of all scripture. You can think of Adam in the Garden of Eden, right? When he, he, did, he disobeyed God and he ate the forbidden fruit. You can think of the generation of the flood when they rose up in rebellion against God and God wiped them out with a flood, right? It's the same story over and over again, isn't it? Man in rebellion against God. Babel, the Tower of Babel was a uh, and, and uh, open rebellion against God. The whole history of Israel congregation, from their start in the book of Exodus, all the way through to Malachi, right, is a history of rebellion against God. In fact, they seem addicted to rebellion. They, they, they seem unable to bring themselves to a place of faithful submission to God. And it's the same story. In fact, if you think of a book like Judges, that would be the whole theme of the book of Judges. Right? That, that the, these people are just addicted to rebellion against God. They're not able to submit to his, to his lead. The prophets are continually preaching against Israel. You're in a state of rebellion against God. Repent of this. Come back to God. Serve Him with gladness. And then finally, the book of Revelation. Right? Where again, you see this. And I, I know I skipped over large portions of the Bible, but I think you see how the Bible is a message about man's revolt against God. 
But then it comes. Oh, I wanted to read this, this quote with you for, uh, from Jonathan Edwards, who has such a graphic way of putting things. This is very, very difficult language, but still a very, very profound thing he says here. This is in a sermon that Edwards preached on the wicked. And so that's the, that's the they here. This belief of the being of a God, they, that is the wicked, perceive would be a thing very much cross to their strongest inclinations and appetites. It would disturb them and create them a great deal of uneasiness in their pursuit of their pleasures. To think that there is an almighty being that has them and all things in his hands and that perfectly hates sin and will revenge it, that beholds them continually and sees their hearts and all their secret actions. They have no inclination that it should be thus. In other words, they, they don't want this, this uh, state of affairs. They, they wish there were no God. It is what they could heartily wish for, that they could be assured it were otherwise. This is what they really want. They, they wish it were otherwise. That there was no supreme being to take notice of their behavior and call them to an account. And then this profound sentence. They have disposition enough. In other words, they want to dethrone God or to kill him if it lay in their power. Now that's the story of Scripture in terms of man's treason. But then to hasten on to the next thing, right? this plenipotentiary, right? this fact that God sets up Jesus as his king, as his anointed one, and sends him on this mission of salvation to earth. You can start with Genesis 3.15, where God promises to Eve and to Adam right, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Right? You see, already there's, there's beginning to, there to be talk and hints and clues that God is not just going to turn the world over into hell forever. You can think of Abraham, right? Where God says to Abraham, in your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. All the families of the earth be blessed. In your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And in the Old Testament worship, right? When day after day, week after week, animals were slaughtered. Blood flowed forth. And the Israelite nation was taught in a very vivid pictorial way that there was atonement possible. That God was a God who forgives sins. He pardons iniquity. You see, these are all hints, aren't they? That God's not finished with his people. You can think about David. When God promised David in 2 Samuel 7, God said to David, one of your children will always be sitting on the throne of Israel. Who is that? Literally, it's not true, right? The last Davidic king was Zedekiah. He died, was killed, and no other Davidic king stood on the throne of Israel. But don't, don't kid yourself, right? There always was a son of David, a, a son with a capital S, a son of David sitting on the throne of Israel. All these clues that God is going to invest his power in another, in his anointed, in his plenipotentiary. And then, of course, in the Gospels, the king comes. He says the kingdom of God is here. But notice how Jesus talks about his kingdom. And let me just remind you, in Psalm 2, Jesus says, I will surely tell of the decree or the mission of the Lord. But notice how Jesus talks about it in John 4. And, and these are only a few texts. In John 4, in verse 34, Jesus said to his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Notice, congregation, that Jesus doesn't say he's on a mission of his own. He came to do the will of his Father. And that's how he represents it over and over again. I'm just reading two texts to you. But there are many texts like this in the New Testament where Jesus says, I'm not here to do my will. I've been sent on a mission. I'll read one more text in John 6, verse 38. John 6 and verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Raise it on the last day. This is the will of God, that he will invest his son with all the power of God Almighty and send him to earth on a mission. He is his plenipotentiary. And we know, congregation, that on Jesus' first coming, it did not look like he had all the power of God Almighty. But you can't stop with just his first coming, right? I'm sorry, I I said that wrong. It did not look as his first coming had so much power. But it really did. And that's where we read the book of Revelation. We read what, what, what really was happening when Jesus was on earth. It looked like he was losing, didn't it? It looked like he was being persecuted and harassed and chased and, had, and finally died disappointed on a cross. But in the book of Revelation, we're taught, right, that Satan was bound, that he was cast down to earth and destroyed in the coming of Christ to this earth. The book of Revelation unveils for us what really was happening with God's plenipotentiary. Finally, congregation, you have the promise. The promise. And I, uh, I'll just quote John 3, verse 16, right? Because this is so familiar to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And here's the promise, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Congregation, that's just the equivalent of what we read in Psalm 2. Blessed or happy are all they who take refuge in him. That's the promise. In congregation, that's the beautiful thing that is un- unveiled for us in the Scripture. In all the different books, in the Old Testament, in the New, in the Psalms, in the Gospels, in Paul's letters, in the Prophets, in one way, shape, or form, this is what's happening. The Scripture are unveiling to us the treasonous revolt of man against God. God's Son, God's anointed on a mission. And then the promise, the call. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Now, congregation, I always like to point out to you in our confessions, so as we move to our application here, I would ask you to take the the blue hymnal out, and I just want to quickly show you in our confessions how we see this echoed, these themes in the Canons of Dort. I'm on page 92 in the back of the blue hymnal. Page 92 in the back of the blue hymnal. And I think you can, you'll recognize now this outline that I've given you. Because in page 92, this is the first head of doctrine that our synod gave us, and Article 1. So in other words, the very first words of our Canons of Dort, as all men have sinned in Adam, lie under the curse and are deserving of eternal death, and so on. What's this? This is the treason. Right? This is the rebel, the rebellion of which Psalm 2 has spoken, and which all Scripture teaches us, Right? that men is in revolt against God. And it teaches us there, right, that God would have done no injustice by leaving them all to perish and delivering them over to condemnation on account of sin. So there's the bad news of man's rebellion. But let's hasten to Article 2. Article 2. Because we know 
that God invested all his authority on his son Jesus Christ and sent him to earth on a mission of salvation. And what is Article 2? But in this, the love of God was manifested, that he sent his only begotten son into the world, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? We never can quote John 3.16 enough, can we? For all that is so common, but it does. It encapsulates all of Scripture in a verse. God so loved the world. He sent his son on that mission of salvation. And then congregation in Articles 3 and 4, we have the promise. And let's read, let's read uh, all of 3 and all of 4. Article 3. And that men may be brought to believe, God mercifully sends the messengers of these most joyful tidings, to whom he will, and at what time he pleases, by whose ministry men are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? So there's the unveiling of the promise. And Article 4, the wrath of God abides upon those who believe not this gospel. But such as receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior by a true and living faith are by him delivered from the wrath of God and from destruction and have the gift of eternal life conferred upon them. In a word, how blessed are they who take refuge in him. So you see that in Articles 1, 2, 3, and 4. The rebel, the treason, the plenipotentiary, Jesus Christ, and the glorious promise. So that's in my first place of the application congregation. You see how our fathers have captured that message and have passed it along to us then in the beautiful articles given to us in our canons of Dort. But then in my second point, my second point of application, congregation, it shows us then that all Scripture points to Jesus. All of Scripture then is meant to bring us to focus on Jesus. Right? We, we sometimes chuckle at our children who, who answer every question about the Bible with, with Jesus. But there's more truth in it than they know, isn't there? It really is the case. Right? From Genesis, from the fall of Adam in Genesis, and God saying the seed of the woman, all the way on through Israelites' worship, the sacrifices, right? And all the different types and pictures of Christ in Old Testament worship, right? On through the prophets, on into the Gospels, when Jesus comes and he begins his ministry, he does his miracles, he calls people to enter into the kingdom of God, right? He preaches the Gospel about himself, even after Jesus dies. Hey, have you ever noticed that when you, when you read Paul's letters, how, how he just seems to say Jesus or Christ in almost every verse, right? He, everything, the, the, all of man's salvation is, is bound up in Christ. And how many times doesn't Paul use that word in Christ or in him or into Christ or, or all these different ways and expressions of saying that we can never be saved until we are joined to Jesus Christ by a true faith, until we bow before Him and submit to Him, until we kiss the Son, right? And show homage and submission to Him. He is the, the Savior and the only possible way of salvation because God has set Him up as the salvation of the world. You know, there was a man at the seminary. He was a preacher from Ethiopia. 
And I, I never forgot what he said. It warmed my heart so much. He, he said, Chris, he said, when I was in Ethiopia, I preached man. I preached what the gospel can do for you, how it can give you a new truck, how it can fix your house, how it can give you good health. All these things, right, that we've come to recognize, right, from, from so much Christianity today. Look what Jesus can do for you, right? But now, he says, I've studied at the seminary, and I've studied these things, I've studied what the Bible says about it, and he says, now I preach Christ. I preach Christ. And congregation, that is uh, what true preaching is. Because congregation, if it's true that all of Scripture points us to Jesus, then all of preaching should join us, should point us to Jesus. This is what we mean in our circles when we refer to Christ-centered preaching. Christ-centered preaching isn't just when we're talking about Jesus, right? It's not just when we, we preach a sermon on something that Jesus did in his life. Christ-centered preaching is preaching that ends in the Savior. Christ-centered preaching brings us to the feet of Jesus. It brings us to his feet so we can kiss the Son. And Christ-centered preaching, congregation, uh, it, not, I mean, one sermon may have more of it than another, right? But in one way or another, uh, the, the ministry of the preaching of the gospel is all about bringing us to, to Christ. Because all scripture brings us to Christ. Death in Adam, life in Christ. That congregation is the summary of preaching. I think I said to you that preaching is the exposition and the application of the word of God. That's what it is. But the message, the content of preaching should be the content of scripture. Death in Adam, life in Christ. Or to put it in the terms of, of Psalm 2, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he become not angry and you perish in the way. And that congregation then is the preaching of Jesus and the unveiling that not just the preaching of Jesus but the unveiling of that promise and saying here is God's promise. Here is God's Son. He is set up before you and God's promises that whosoever now comes and joins himself to Jesus, is saved. That means he's cast off the rebellion. He's put aside the treason in which he was engaged, as we read in the beginning of this song. He's, laid, he's put down those weapons. And he's joined himself to God's anointed. Well, congregation, decision. Because this promise that is unveiled to us now calls for decision, doesn't it? It calls for decision. Because it means that Jesus Christ is set up before you in the preaching of the gospel. But it then comes with that promise, that call of which our canons have said, right? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And congregation, that comes to all of us. God has set his son on his holy hill. And either we are outside of Christ or we are inside of Christ. Either we are submitted to Him, either we have bowed before Him or we're in a state of rebellion against Him. There is no middle ground there. Jesus Himself said, either you are for me or you are against me. In congregation, there's a great deal of very religious people in our day who are against the Savior. 
They go through all the motions and the acts of religious worship. And they know the language to use, but their hearts are far from it. They're not joined to Jesus Christ by faith. They've not kissed the Son. Now, congregation, that should lead us then. That should lead us to confront ourselves with that glorious question, that glorious promise, which is a glorious promise. But as our text says, rejoice with trembling. Worship the Lord with fear. Because God doesn't come to us, congregation, in an in a, in a attitude of weakness. That, oh, please, come to Jesus, and then you'll be saved. I, I wish I could do it for you, but I can't, and so I'm helplessly pleading with you. That's not what he says. Oh, he calls, congregation. And he offers us this glorious salvation, but with trembling, congregation, because we know that behind God's sincere offer and call to the gospel is a God of power, a God of anger, who will ruthlessly judge those who persist in their treason. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That's why the text comes to us, rejoice with trembling. But still rejoice, congregation. You know, I put that in there in the text. Hell is real. Hell is terrible. Hell is eternal. And what's that last blank there? The message of the gospel this morning, congregation, is that hell is avoidable. Avoidable. No one needs to go to hell. And congregation, with a promise unveiled before you today, that salvation is in Jesus Christ. This is how we avoid hell. By joining ourselves to the Savior. And I call upon you this morning to, to be honest with yourself. You know, one of the ways that we can, we can kind of sidestep this, this promise, right? This, this call that comes to us is by saying, well, I'm a Christian. I've always been a Christian. That's wonderful, congregation. I'm not doubting that today. But this is as much a call to the people of God as it is to any unconverted or unbelieving person. What a blessing it is, congregation, when by renewing, we kiss the Son. We submit and bow to Him. When we embrace that gospel promise, just as if we'd never embraced it before. Certainly, congregation, that's what we do every time the sacrament is spread before us. When we receive the elements of, of, of broken bread and poured out wine, we are kissing the Son, as it were. We are doing homage to the Savior. We're taking hold of Him. We're laying aside the weapons of our rebellion. And that's a beautiful thing, congregation. That's not just for unconverted, unbelieving people to do. That's for all of us to do. Those are, those are such sweet moments in our life of faith. When we come and when we bow before the Savior and say, Lord, I'm lost in myself. I've risen up in treason and rebellion against you. But this morning I've heard the promise of salvation. And I've heard that it's all in Jesus. And I take hold of Him. I have hope in no other. Our call to worship this morning, congregation, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. What a happy call that is. And I hope, congregation, that, that we will come and take hold of, and hear that call and obey it. You know, and I, I want to take you back to the very first sermon I ever preached. Or the very first sermon I preached in this church as your pastor. Do you remember? Do you remember what it said in 2 Corinthians 11? For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, says Paul, so that to Christ I might present you 
as a pure virgin. A congregation, that's why it weighs so heavy on me as pastor and on every preacher who stands in this pulpit. Because I know that a day is coming when you're going to stand before the throne of Jesus Christ. He won't have then a call, a promise of salvation in his hands anymore. But then it's going to be time for judgment. There's no going back from that hour and from that moment. That's why Paul says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Because I don't want one person in this congregation to stand before God that day, having missed this glorious salvation. And that's why it comes so earnestly with us today. I have betrothed you to one husband. Congregation, be betrothed. Be married to that one husband. Be betrothed to that one husband because your marriage day is coming. Your bridegroom's going to come for you. And may he find us clinging to the promise of salvation in Christ. Because then we have a husband. Then we have a marriage. Then that betrothal is not just something on paper, but it's something real and true and sincere. That's what I pray, congregation, for you, for the children, for the young people, and for all of us, that we could stand together before God one day in happiness and say, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. May God grant it for his name's sake. Amen. Oh God, how serious this call is. And we know that behind that call is so much wrath. You would say to those who persist in their rebellion that you will crush them with a rod of iron and shatter them like a pot of clay. Lord, I pray that every one of us then, whether we have been Christians all our life or whether we have never been Christians before, that we would with gladness and joy hear this promise and saying, Lord, I come. Lord, I take hold of Jesus Christ. I have hope in no other. Lord, will you remember us then in this, in, in this morning, will you remember us in your mercy and give us a felt sense of the glory and the beauty of this salvation, which teaches us that we are happy and blessed beyond measure when we take refuge in your anointed Son. Lord, will you bless us then also as we return to church this evening. We pray, O oh God, that there too we might hear this blessed gospel and that we might find great joy in it. Remember us, O oh Lord, young and old, also the catechism and Sunday school classes that will now take place. Lord, will you bless our children with a firm faith and trust in the Savior to walk with him day by day. And all these things we ask in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.